international relations class seniors. I hope this works. I haven't recorded in this space before. I'm speaking to you from the library school lab, the computer lab on UCLA's campus, trying to kill two birds with one stone over here on a Saturday and avoid the super loud landscaping uh, crew at New Roads on a Saturday morning. Uh, thank you for joining me today. We're going to be podcasting my letter that I wrote to you on the selection of New York City as the headquarters of the United Nations. And I'm just planning on reading the letter to you. <clears throat> it won't be exactly the letter. I'll add probably some digressions. Also, I've never used this podcasting software before, and you know I'm, uh, I enjoy technology, but I'm not, a, uh, I'm not in the music industry, and I'm not a computer whiz, but wish me well. Uh, it seems like a fun program. Let's try it out. There are some interesting bells and whistles. Well, let's get started. Rather than lecture on this subject, I'm typing up these notes to save us time in class, and also because they might serve as a handy reference as you construct your new UN headquarters city proposals. This topic is not covered in the course textbook, but it fascinates me. I always just took for granted that New York City, and certainly the United States, were the obvious choice for the location of the United Nations. I should know better than to take anything in history for granted, and as scholars, we always look through a glass darkly. The Prelude, the League of Nations, and the Failure of the Spirit of Geneva. You know from your history classes that the First World War, then called the Great War, destroyed much of Europe, resulting in the deaths of millions and crushed the confidence of Europeans who until 1914 had seen civilization always improving, modernizing, becoming more just and ethical, no longer the terrors of gas attacks being submarined at sea or bombed and strafed from the air, these new realities killed much of Europe's faith in its societies and their ability to keep a shaky post-war peace. One of the main parts of the Treaty of Versailles was the creation of a League of Nations that would help to guarantee there would not be another world war. Pardon the typo for there, there. Geneva, Switzerland was chosen because it's right smack in the middle of Europe, and Europe was still where all the pow power and action was. Further, Switzerland zealously maintained its neutrality and still does today. One thing we don't have to be neutral about is rooting for Roger Federer, of course, Swiss legend and UN goodwill ambassador that he is. Of course, he lost, I think, in the quarterfinals at the US Open, which is a shame. American President Woodrow Wilson insisted in his negotiations with British Prime Minister Lloyd George and President Georges Clemenceau of France that a league be created. Then, in a bitter irony, the United States refused to join. The Senate, which, as you know, is required to approve foreign treaties as part of its powers under Article I of the Constitution, was controlled by the Republicans, and Majority Leader Henry Cabot Lodge didn't want to saddle the United States with foreign obligations. Remember, class, that in President Washington's farewell address written by Alexander Hamilton, Washington warned his countrymen against entangling alliances with foreign countries. Lodge took this warning to heart. Pardon the typo. Also, he wanted to embarrass President Wilson, his political enemy, and weaken him for the 1920 election. So the United States never joined the League of Nations. And this is one of the main reasons the U.S. was on the sidelines as Japan attacked China, the Germans gobbled up Austria and Czechoslovakia, 
and Italy savaged Ethiopia with a campaign of conquest that saw poison gas used against civilians. The U.S., which after the First World War was the world's strongest economic power and strongest potential military power, could take no action in the League because it had never joined. Britain and France tried ineffectually to keep the peace in the League, but they were exhausted from World War I and just as scared of communist, of communist Russia as they were of Herr Hitler in Nazi Germany. And so the war came. World War II was not the League of Nations' fault. As Winston Churchill said in 1946, after World War II, quote, the League did not fail because of its principles or conceptions. It failed because those principles were deserted by those states which brought it into being. The League of Nations was known between the two world wars for the, quote, spirit of Geneva, a willingness to work for peace and brotherhood of nations. After World War II, after the atomic bombs were dropped and the horrific death camps were liberated, after soldiers came home maimed or did not come home at all, the spirit of Geneva became a sad joke. Geneva was never, accordingly, a serious contender to be the headquarters of the new United Nations. The question remains, could peace have been kept if the League had been placed in New York City in 1920? It's a what-if question that is not asked often, and I do wonder. But back to what actually happened. Potential sites for the United Nations headquarters, 1945 to 1946. As World War II was winding down, the Allies, United States, Great Britain, Soviet Union, and to a lesser extent, nationalist China and newly freed France, were looking hard were working hard to plan the new world order. President Roosevelt hoped that the United Nations would be a beefed-up, stronger version of the League. And remember, this is before the Cold War, so FDR assumed the Allies could act as policemen of the world, each assuming regional duties. Of course, this also assumes Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist China remained in power, and they were soon to lose power to Mao Zedong's communists. See Jace's ISP last year for that counterfactual future. In 1944, FDR told his Secretary of State that his top preferred picks for the United Nations headquarters would be somewhere in the Hawaiian Islands or the Azores Islands. FDR was in terrible health all through his third term. <clears throat> Pardon me. And none of the leaders of the Democratic Party thought he'd live through a fourth term. They were right. He died in April 1945, and Vice President Harry S. Truman took over. Pardon for the typo. Worked too fast. All of a sudden, it didn't matter where FDR had wanted the UN to be. In 1945, the United States and Soviet Union were in agreement that the future United Nations headquarters would be in the United States. Great Britain and France assumed that the UN would just go in Geneva again, or London. But the rest of the world was not willing to allow Europe a second bite at the apple in leading international diplomacy. As one observer put it, Quote, Europe, storm center of the world, is not the logical center for the peace center of the world. Somewhere in the U.S. or possibly Canada would go, the new, would go the new United Nations. The first leading contenders in the United States are listed below. Rapid Cities, number one, in the Black Hills of South Dakota. It had a lot of local support. There was a growing tourism industry centered on Mount Rushmore, and former uh, President Calvin Coolidge had summered there. I apologize. I'm catching all these typos after the fact. I really, really rushed this product out, and I apologize. He used to be more of a big deal, Calvin Coolidge. 
This idea generated a lot of interest in the Dakotas, but the feds in Washington, D.C. killed the idea quickly. As a 1945 July internal State Department memo explained the site was just too far away from any important urban center. Detroit, which was already called the Motor City because so many cars were manufactured there, it's right on the U.S.-Canada border and home to lots of war industries that were converting to peaceful uses like making all kinds of consumer products. Just think about it. Hardly anyone had a refrigerator before World War II, and then by the 1950s, every house seemingly had one. Even your faculty has one here at New Roads. Detroit planned to build one, uh, planned to build the headquarters on Belle Isle, which is still a popular park there today. Third, San Francisco. I lived there with Kier for a long time in the mission. The city's mayor then was Ralph Lapham, and he was a big friend of the Democratic administrations, FDR and then Truman. San Fran had plenty of hotel rooms, a beautiful new opera house. The Golden Gate Bridge was not even a decade old yet. And most importantly, America's focus in World War II was about to shift from Europe to Japan. Placing the UN on the Pacific coast would match that shift in attention, and the Soviets were very open to the idea. San Fran planned to place the UN either on Twin Peaks with great views all around. I used to live in the Mission District down the hill from there. I'm a Florida flatlander, remember? And the Mission has the best weather in the city. Alternatively, San Francisco would place the UN at Strawberry Point. And there were plans to have a court of flags and other features that were largely adopted in, in New York City later on. Uh, if you ever take the BART around San Francisco, you'll know that the Civic Center stop is also UN Plaza as a reminder of these days. The UN first met in San Francisco. The image is below on the page, so it was assumed that it would be the first headquarters. Also below is a photo of San Francisco on victory over Japan Day in September 1945, which is right around this time of the year. Fourth choice is Philadelphia, where my whole family's from. My dad went to Villanova, etc. Um... The Big Pretzel City is the birthplace of the major documents of American democracy, namely the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The United States thought the UN would work best if it was modeled on American democracy. Further, Philly's mayor thought building all the stuff necessary for the UN would, quote, lift Philadelphia from its lethargy. Fifth, some Canadian site. Major contenders were Saint-Saint-Marie and Niagara Falls, which is right on the border of the U.S. and Canada. Sixth is Chicago. It's a railroad crossroads. And at the time was the second largest city in the United States. We forget, though, that back then, Poland was a huge and difficult problem between the Soviet Union and the United States. And Chicago had a large Polish-American immigrant population. So the international community was shy to put the UN where they might have such potential controversy. And there's a footnote about President Ford and a gaffe in the 1976 election, which is interesting. Seventh is Geneva or some other European location. There's a photo below of Le Palais des Nations in Geneva, 1938. They just finished this beautiful new complex just as uh, Germany completed the Anschluss with Austria. You've seen the sound of music. And we were right around the corner from World War II, so it didn't get used for very long. I typed above that the British and French were behind this idea, and Geneva's proponents pointed out that 28 countries' capital cities are within 2,000 miles of Geneva. No national capitals are within 2,000 miles of San Francisco in comparison. 
Warsaw, Poland was another possible choice, and a sentimental one, too, as it had been destroyed in the war. Yet the Soviets feared placing the UN there would block their control over Poland. So that was not going to work. Australia and other former British colonies ended up supporting placing the UN in the United States, and this was decisive. The secondary contenders for the UN headquarters. Class above are just the main contenders in 1945 for the UN headquarters. Notice that New York City and Boston aren't on the list. They ended up being the two strongest contenders, but didn't start out that way at all. Boston did start to rev up their promotional campaigns soon enough. This was a city, the Bostonians said, that tied Old England to New England, symbolizing the new Anglo-American partnership, and was the city nearest geographically to Europe. If Boston wasn't acceptable, Newport, Rhode Island was always a local alternative. Myers tells the interesting story of Ben Choate, the chief of the Choctaw Tribe Nation in Oklahoma, who made a compelling argument for the UN to be located in Native American country, specifically on Choctaw land at Tuscahoma, the former capital of the tribe. Beyond the symbolic value of returning power and prestige to the First Nations, Choate pointed out that Oklahoma had a central geographic position in the United States. St. Louis, you recall the political cartoon of St. Louis himself pushing this idea that it looked like he had a weird hat and he was pointing to the confluence of the major rivers of the country, argued that as the gateway to the West and also in the middle of the country, it should be considered. Also, back then, St. Louis was the eighth largest city in the country in the 1940 census. New Orleans was another Mississippi, Mississippi River metropolis that wanted the U.N., and its backers explained that New Orleans connected the United States to Latin America through the Gulf of Mexico and to the Pacific Ocean through the Panama Canal. New Orleans had barely lost out to San Francisco for the 1915 Pan-Pacific Exposition and considered itself then and now as a global city. And European travelers often remark on how European the city looks, especially the French Quarter. Denver was booming in the 1940s, and all sorts of federal infrastructure was growing. The city sold itself as the capital of the Rockies. For its UN pitch, Denver's team argued that their city was safe from all sorts of natural disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes. Perhaps surprising to the modern reader, Denver also connected its civic past to the original Spanish explorers who claimed the area for Spain centuries before. Denver, the, city lead the city's leaders said, was connected in history and heritage to the rest of Latin America. The field narrows, and New York and Boston step into the lead. All right, class, take a break here. You've been listening for a while. If you want, um, grab a beverage, uh, stretch your legs, whatever you need to do, and I'll come back and talk to you about New York City. Thank you. <laughs> All right, class, back to the letter. The field narrows and New York and Boston step into the lead. Once the British figured out the UN would not be placed in London or anywhere in Europe and not even in Canada, they cut their losses. Great Britain's Minister of State, Philip Noel Becker, Baker, worked behind the scenes to ensure the headquarters would be on the eastern seaboard, either Boston or New York, preferably. 
the site the British pressed should be close enough for diplomats to take advantage of a major city's amenities, but far enough away so that it wouldn't just merge into the city. Baker said, quote, All members should be able to feel quite at home, whatever their racial origin or the character of their state. Great Britain, Australia, and India pointed out the problems of racial discrimination in the United States and agreed privately with other allies, most notably Ethiopia, Liberia, and Haiti, that the headquarters would not be located in any of the states of the South. It was all about racial discrimination. And the UN countries wanting to avoid diplomats of color from being discriminated against in the Jim Crow segregationist South. The headquarters committee did not report this fact fully to the press, not wanting to offend white Southerners, and stated that the reason the headquarters locations were being restricted to the Northeast was simply because it was closest geographically to Europe. This fact is underreported in the literature, and it's not in our minxed textbook or any of the other main textbooks. I wish I knew why. It's an excellent example of progressive attitudes from foreign countries judging white American racism harshly and acting against it. It's not talked about enough in American classrooms, but world opinion shaped American attitudes on race relations and helped push the civil rights movement forward. This is why Dr. King was so warmly received and embraced when accepting the Nobel Prize in Oslo, Norway in 1964. So New Orleans was out of the running, accordingly, along with Miami, Florida, and Jacksonville, Florida, and even little Charlottesville, Virginia, home of the University of Virginia, all ruled out. Paul Hasluck, Australia's representative on the UN Headquarters Committee, explained, quote, We have a United Nations which is going to have in its membership at least two pure African delegates, delegations, Liberia and Ethiopia and Haiti. We have delegations which will come from Asiatic countries. We have delegations which will come from India. And I think if any delegate traveling to or from the headquarters is going to be subject, subjected to humiliation or discrimination, we have put the headquarters in an unsuitable place. So New York and Boston, not perfect cities by any means, but at least not in the Jim Crow South. The UN Headquarters Committee now cast its critical eye on New York City and Boston, but not in the city themselves. No, absolutely not. These diplomats did not want the new peace organization to be buried deep in a major metropolis. Their parameters were clear. The headquarters should be at least 25 miles from the city center, but no more than 60 miles away. The diplomats wanted excellent schools, hospitals, and medical centers, cultural venues, and the best weather, if at all possible. Nothing but the best for the new leaders of the world. Class, lots of different suburbs and towns from Walden, Massachusetts, and Concord, Mass., to Westchester, New York, and Greenwich, Connecticut. Even Princeton, New Jersey, made their bids for the new headquarters. Below, they ran up against what we still all the time have today. NIMBY, not in my backyard. These lovely little suburbs didn't want the traffic, noise, higher taxes, and hassle <clears throat> that would come with such a huge new commitment. When hard work needs to be done for the public good, often it is the major cities, their ambitious mayors, already built infrastructure, rafts of legislators' votes, and muscular sensibilities that drive a plan forward. And in this place, Gotham was the green fuse that drove through the flower of the United Nations. NYC. New York City wins. While Boston, Philly, and even San Francisco with a last gasp effort tried to persuade the UN committee, New York City pulled inexorably into the lead. Why? Some of the most powerful men in New York City, including Robert Moses, 
who was responsible for having much of New York City's public infrastructure built in this period, and Nelson Rockefeller, future governor of New York and vice president of the United States, hatched a plan. Rockefeller and his dad agreed that the ideal location for the new UN was along the East River from 42nd to 48th Streets. So the Rockefellers bought the land for $8.5 million, although they had estimated it was worth $25 million at the time. Either way, that's chump change today, and gifted it to the UN. Nearly all of the countries in the UN were ecstatic and seized the place to place seize a chance to place the UN in New York City. Exceptions were the Arab League, led by Egypt and Australia, which still wanted San Francisco. But too bad, so sad. New York had won, and I've queued up the song. Uh, it's not the official video, but it's a, a beautiful video for Alicia Keys, uh, Empire State of Mind. Sorry, Jay Z's not in it. Um, I know there's a version where he raps too. It's great. And below on the page is the UN building constructed in 1952. Class, uh, that's the end of this letter on the location of the new UN headquarters and how New York City got it. And I hope that you find this supplemental supplemental letter of my own composition, uh, a nice addition to the reading we're going to be doing this year in the Minx textbook. And I hope you have a very nice day. Thank you very much.